Welcome to the Glasgow Museum's podcast. In this episode, we are delighted to welcome Sorsha Dallas Gray, custodian of the Alistair Gray Archive, and Rona Warwick Patterson, an artist writer based in Glasgow, who is also Goma's current associate artist. Sorsha and Rona will be talking with Katie Bruce, producer curator from Goma, as part of the Goma at 25 series celebrating the work of the Gallery of Modern Art on its 25th anniversary. Welcome to this Glasgow Museum's podcast, which is part of a series of conversations with artists, curators and lovely human beings that we've worked with over the last 25 years for GOMA at 25. This series has been generously supported by Art Fund and the Respond and Reimagine Fund. And my name is Katie Bruce. I'm one of the curators at GOMA and I'm currently in the Alistair Gray Archive with Social Dallas and GOMA's current associate artist, Rona Warwick-Patterson, who's been responding to GOMA's exhibition, Domestic Bliss, which contains some of Alistair's works. Would you both like to introduce yourselves? Sure, hello. I'm Sorsha Dallas, and I'm the custodian of the Alistair Gray Archive, and before that I worked with Alistair. I used to run a commercial gallery, so I was responsible for really managing his visual work. Um, that closed in 2011, but continued to work with that side of his practice. But as we'll get into the conversation, the visual and literary are constantly intertwined, and really through that I guess I started to work with you, Katie, on several projects I'm sure that we'll discuss in due course. I'm sure we will. Mm-hmm. Hello, I'm Rona Warwick-Patterson, and I'm an artist that works across different media. Sometimes it's with language and text, sometimes it's performance, sometimes it's um, visual and printmaking. It just depends on the context and the idea, really. My introduction to, I guess, art is synonymous with Alistair Gray in lots of ways. So it's really nice to have this conversation that stitches up those two ideas together. And also my relationship to the Gallery of Modern Art goes way back into my childhood as well. There's this sort of foreboding building at the bottom of the street. So I lived in Merchant City at the time when I was growing up, so I kind of remember it being this great kind of municipal building, but had an identity crisis (laughs) and then with the work in the Domestic Bliss show of course it connects very personally to the way that I work as a a person that's a creative worker so I work from home and quite often use the materials of the home as a sort of access point to build a body of work Uh, and all the joys and all the misgivings that that brings with it is just all becomes a repository for ideas at the end of the day. So the work that was in the Domestic Bliss show has really opened up these other worlds of different artists that are responding to the ideas of domestic and also allowing me to bring conversations into the gallery space. Almost a kind of displaced conversation from the kitchen table at home into a kind of more public sphere. Yeah, so I guess we'll talk more about that later too. Thank you both so much. Um, I'm going to flip us back a little bit first because this is for Gomer at 25. So we're asking everyone, what were you doing in 1996 when we opened and were you aware of Gomer opening? Um, Yes, I was aware of Gomer opening. I guess it felt like very much... Pat Lally and all the stuff around the Garden Festival, City of Culture, it felt like Glasgow's riding a wave a little bit in terms of internationally reframing its position and obviously art and creativity being at the kind of forefront of that. Um, I was in my second year, just finishing my second year at Glasgow School of Art in the Drawing and Painting Department and I just submitted an application to go in my third year to study in Berlin at the Hadika, the Hirschschule der Kunst which I ended up going for double my time. I was meant to go for three months, went for six months, and it did have such a huge formative experience on me personally and professionally, 
But I think if I think about the domestic, it really made me think about it's really from being in Berlin at that time, the wall wasn't long down. It felt quite a radical place to be, the way I viewed art and artists, the way that they were working with an often very unconventional space. It was very formative for me, so I guess I had a, an echo of that kind of came back with me and I graduated and then set up switch space with my friend, Mariana Grated, which was always predominantly in domestic spaces. So it was that seeing art in those different contexts, and a lot of them were domestic sites that re- in Berlin that really sort of shaped and, and formed me. So I think it's an interesting, if we're talking about the domestic space, to link that back and maybe also to just explain, because people are obviously listening, that the space at the archive is a, a recreation of a domestic space mm-hmm. in which Alistair always lived and worked within the domestic setting, and many of the elements that you see here travelled with him through the different sites in which he worked. So we reconfigured in the different flats that he inhabited throughout Glasgow. So yeah, I do really I remember sort of some controversy maybe around some of the purchases, but I also remember visiting and the Nikki de Safal entrance bay was really a work that even now I love going back and experiencing that. Yeah, and Rona? Yeah, I mean, it took me a while to work out where I was in the I started art school in 1997 as a mature student. I was the mature age of 24. Mm-hmm. Not that mature, but anyway. So in 1996, I was doing a portfolio prep class at Annisland College. That had followed a year of me living on my own in France. I was just her bad au pair. <laughs> and then I realised that time away from Glasgow and just that sort of dislocation from all that I knew to be familiar. Being in France, recalibrated how I felt about Glasgow. And I always remember flying over Glasgow and looking down and seeing the glinting buses, the orange buses, and feeling through that weird detail that I was somehow coming home again. And it just felt really good. So 1996, I'd made a decision that I wanted... You know, I'd always enjoyed art at school and then I'd started signing on. (laughs) That seems to be connected to being an artist. I just decided to make a concerted effort to really try and get into the the Cathedral of Art, which was Glasgow School of Art at the time. So my portfolio prep class, I think, really opened my eyes to a lot of Glasgow-born artists. Because I was like, well, I can't be the only person that's thinking about the city like this. There must be other people. And I think, you know, if we're going to connect Alistair, maybe we should do that later, as a sort of formative stage and how you kind of configure your creative imagination. I think for me, Goma... You know, I don't remember it opening, but I remember the Nicky and Fowl work. Mm-hmm. And I remember that there was this slightly fancy canteen. Is that right? Yeah, there was um, a Michelin-starred restaurant Michelin in the top Michelin-star restaurant, okay. And was the Wazinski mural, did that happen at the same time? Yeah, yeah. that was a commission yeah. for the building. And I think there's some archival stuff where Julian had asked him to make some a slice of heaven mm-hmm. at the top of the building. <laughs> but I do remember it, because I remember yeah. the, the, the light-flooded mm-hmm. space that that was, and also just that heavy outlined mm-hmm. narrative style mm-hmm. of painting, and how that sort of connected my head to what it was to be an artist that was working in Glasgow. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. like the relationships between, I guess, my introduction into the art world or into thinking imaginatively. You know, there's this triangulation between the art school, Alistair Gray, and this stylistic, strong narrative work that was going on at the time, you know, from the Glasgow Boys mm-hmm. and, and So there was a connection between storytelling, I suppose, mm-hmm. and how that site I'd used Goma as a library, you know? Yeah. And so it seemed to me that there was this 
shadow life that it occupied, where it was a repository for lots of ideas, and but also a building that you could sort of sneakily fall asleep mm-hmm. in and tucked away somewhere. So it felt like a kind of home, but also didn't operate as a home. And I was aware of its its history as a sort of domestic residence. But yeah, I think at the time it felt like a shift that in Glasgow something had shifted and suddenly Glasgow was taking art a bit more seriously, mm-hmm. which was, mm-hmm. was nice to feel part of that trajectory mm-hmm. anyway. Mm-hmm. So yeah, on the cusp, on the precipice of getting into art schools. In that year I built up a portfolio based all in drawings of in and around Glasgow. And, you know, it takes 20 years later for me to find the City Recorder series and go, yeah. oh my goodness. <laughs> I think it's also, isn't it, the opportunity offered to see works, and you know, yeah. international works or works from elsewhere that you've maybe, you know, this is obviously pre-digital age too, where you can't go on and Google and find that time. You need to go to library and look it up or to just even to physically encounter some of those things. And also I think that was what was powerful alongside that you had fairly recent graduates who'd been commissioned to, so that um, aspiration to to be an artist or to be a career trajectory seemed something that was a bit more revealed and possible than something that was more hidden and behind the scenes. And I guess that at the same time was the art school with, you know, if you think about the, you did environmental art, right? And then that whole department around David and then the MFA and Sam and that real energy, it's all kind of fusing and coalescing together really, wasn't it, that kind of same time? Yeah, I remember my interview for art school actually, David Harding said to me, because um, he was in an interview, and he said, so Rona, tell me, who's your favourite artist? And I said, um, I think I did say Alistair Gray, mm-hmm. and amongst various mm-hmm. other people I was sort of interested in at the time. I remember the quizzical looks, because you know, at the time, you know, he was known as a writer, mm-hmm. you know, he wasn't really known as a, a, he didn't have this, you know, he was a kind of polymath mm-hmm. amongst the people that knew him and the locality of Glasgow and then Scotland, but... In terms of the broader culture, was that he was very much a writer first, and so my brother came home with a dog-eared copy of Lanark, which is shows you how committed he was to reading it because it's mm-hmm. not a back pocket type mm-hmm. of book. You know, it's a big bulky book, and he was he was drinking in various uh, places in Byers Road at the time, and he came home one night with a signed lead because mm-hmm. Alistair had met him in a pub. I think mm-hmm. it might have been Tenants mm-hmm. or the Chip and said, you're reading my book, and the fact that you've got it, and it's so used, and it's in your pocket. So he drew up a little picture of my brother on it, and I remember there was a few pints exchanged, and my brother came home that night, and was so excited. (laughs) And that was my sort of connection in, and he was like, ah, from that drawing of my brother on the inside cover of Lanark, to making the connection that these two worlds not only can intersect, but are completely wholly supportive of each other transactional element between the visual world and the the, the language world mm-hmm. the, you know the fictitious worlds mm-hmm. that, that he created and but also the situating and the setting of those worlds within a place that's really familiar and recognisable yeah. mm-hmm. even though Unthank is made up but it is so recognisably Glasgow mm-hmm. so it's like to, to have that experience on such a personal level at the brink of my own art education mm-hmm was a pretty seismic thing and also to mention Alistair in my interview mm-hmm. with yeah. the 
But I think that's why Lanark is such a rite of passage for so many art school yeah. students. I think because of that, the reimagining of the city, but also I think for so many people, and I, I love reading it now, obviously because the Mac's not there anymore, and I can remember what it was like to walk up into those spaces and go to the studio and the smells of it and the sounds of the doors, but it's that evocation of it kind of comes through when you read it too, almost like walking in his footsteps or yeah. the ghost of Alistair, of Thaw, but of that space because it kind of no yeah. longer exists anymore. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like I kind of can't almost look at Glasgow anymore without uh-huh. seeing it through. It's been indelibly changed by Alistair's writing and his visualisation of it, whether that's in word or, or, or image. So. Yeah, and I think what's so great about the relationship to the art school is that when you start, you feel so alien to this tradition, this building. You've got a sense that there's all these great artists that have come out of that building. But what you don't get from other artists that have made work about that space is this sort of 360-degree experience, which is the smell of the linseed oil. You know, this, what you stretch your canvas with, you know, the, the glues, the smell of the walls, with the sunlight on them, there's the heat up the resin and the wood. So it's like that's communicated through this medium that Alistair wrote about mm-hmm. in Lanark and how that became so evocative of your own experience mm-hmm. So you carried that reading from Lanark, all of that art school experience with you into that space. Mm-hmm. And now there's it's there forever. And mm-hmm. you know, what's really great about the evocation of space mm-hmm. in relation to your identity as an artist mm-hmm. from Goma, from the art school, is that it suddenly becomes folded into your visual and imaginative palette in some way. Mm-hmm. And you can I think I read something recently that Phila de Barlow said about how the imagination is a resource. Your imagination is constantly being added to, and if, you know, like with Alistair Gray asserting that a city doesn't really exist unless it's been imagined, mm. first, you know, there's a lot to be said about that, is chiming with the artist's experience in a city which traditionally had always seen mass exodus of artists mm-hmm. leaving to go to London to make their career. And I think there's people like Alistair and Douglas Gordon, Jackie Donick, and all these artists that said, well, no, 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 let's make a decision to make Glasgow the space where we can germinate ideas in some way. And I think that line that Duncan Thaw says, was it Duncan Thaw that said it, mm-hmm. in Lanark, is so pivotal to so many artists that I know and writers. And it's just, to me, it sort of encapsulates everything you need to know about this city mm-hmm. and how to navigate working in it. And it's all to do with making the best out of you know, it's like pulling stuff out of skips and making work with it. Mm-hmm. It's what's left over is quite often the most interesting stuff. That's where their skill was. And I think when Goma opened as well, it felt like there was a renewed sense of optimism and self-confidence that came from doing that. Mm-hmm. But I guess at the same time, a number of those artists mm-hmm. that you were talking about were starting to live and work here weren't represented in the collection. Yeah. initially but have gone on yeah. to be represented there yeah. it's a constantly evolving building now yeah. with different artists coming through and like you say in- international shows as yeah. well as shows with local artists yeah and you think in an alternative universe if Spalding had started the collection for Goma only working with Scottish artists or Glasgow artists, how different that collection would look. Mm. That's the thing that you think, you know, it's great that there's work in there that's been collected from all over the world. I mean, it's sort of amazing. Mm. But there's problems with it as well. (laughs) You know, it's complicated. Mm. But it's like, God, like, so at that time when he was collecting, you know, what would that have been, like, the mid-90s? Yeah, early to mid-90s. Yeah. 
And talking about the City Recorder series earlier, like Alistair Gray's work had been in collections. We don't have a GOMA collection. We're part of Glasgow yeah. Museums. And Alistair's work is in Glasgow Museums collection, but under the Social History collection, yeah. there's a City Recorder series yeah. because it was commissioned by Elspeth King yeah. through the People's Palace. Mm-hmm. But it's quite interesting, in 2011, we went on to show the City Recorder series in an art gallery. And I mm-hmm. guess that's that thing of, you know, the understanding of Alistair in his city museums, it was more through social history mm-hmm. rather than mm-hmm. as an artist. I mean, the whole City Recorder idea was so brilliant in mm-hmm. so many ways and totally generated. Elspeth King has to have been given a shout out here because I think, mm-hmm. you know, she created that role for him. She... I think it was like the job creation scheme, wasn't it? Yeah. And it was like, and it was the most um, stable period ever within his life that he yeah. had. It was a, only a year, I think, yeah. wasn't it? I mean, it was incredibly prolific, mm-hmm. you know, because he was given enough money and he was given a space to work and he was given the support mm-hmm. of a small team. Mm-hmm. And within that, you know, I think he made over 30 mm-hmm. finished works. Mm-hmm. The kind of focus on depicting parts of Glasgow that probably wouldn't be there anymore or the people in their workspaces or in their homes Mm -hmm. that came from politics or the art world. But also policemen and Mm -hmm. people that were unemployed. You know, it's this sort of incredible population that you can imagine all being characters in Mm -hmm. Lanark, really. It's a kind of social mapping, isn't it? And that equity and everything that he kind of did for everyone is given afforded the same position no matter on their status really. It was kind of really radical what Elspeth did with that. It would have been great if like every five years or ten years an artist was able to because you're not you've not just got an incredible body of work, but you've also got that real like you're saying it spans those two worlds, isn't it? It's a it's a visual body of work, but it's a social history and commentary. Um, and even politically what it represents by who he's selected and why it does so much more than just be a sort of body of work. It hits into all these other different themes and topics and I think it would be great to even to go back now and look at some of those places Templeton business part doesn't look yeah. that different mm-hmm. lots of areas of the city are radically transformed and yeah. it's so interesting how artists you know Lanark does that how he imagined the city and fixed it at that time but imagined a different version of it and how we're constantly doing that so it would be brilliant I think there's so much scope to sort of build more of a collection or objects are writing around that and celebrate these different ways of thinking or hopes for what things how things could be done differently in a way too yeah I mean it's like the one with the Monaco bar in the middle mm-hmm. that's so wonderful to, in lots of ways it references the building as a central motif right smack dab in the middle yeah. like in, in with the Gaucadens painting mm-hmm. maybe not so in the middle but with the Monaco bar I mean I remember mm-hmm going, that place is just like baked in, it's in Glasgow mm-hmm. and then for the Commonwealth Games I think it was, you know, the whole like let's gentrify and then it goes and that's mm-hmm. that jigsaw piece, that part of Glasgow, that rotting tooth that is so characterful and so imbued with the pints that he sat I think Alistair used to go to the Monaco Bar with Elspeth King mm-hmm. and set the world to rights mm-hmm. and probably do quite a lot of his drawings in there mm-hmm. And then there was, I think there was these three wee boys that used to sit outside in the hope that they would be captured in Mm -hmm. a drawing. So it's just like all that thing of the cause and effect of Mm -hmm. having an artist in the mix shifts things ever so slightly, but enough to engage Mm -hmm. other people's imaginations as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's what Alistair did, I think. I mean, he would talk about that, like wanting to 
remember the people and places that he loved and cared about in words and image. And I think that's what great art or great writing should do, shouldn't it? It's that emotional response to those places too. So you can draw or you can photograph or record in some way some of the places that we're talking about. But it's a much different thing where you try and emotively sort of fuse that within what you're creating too. And I think that's what he did so well. The ledger that we were like looking through earlier captures quite a lot of that within... It's a recycled ledger from a skip. As you were talking about, you always kind of repurpose things. But it's that idea of there's photos and shots of Glasgow that look radically different now. That alongside a bit of text or a, a memory kind of combined to give you a much more rich and an evocative idea of what it felt like to be there. Yeah. We were talking about earlier about the art school. It's beyond just recording that in terms of the height of the wall and the measurement of the floor. It's All these memories are emotional, aren't they? And it's recording that as much as anything else. But I think also there's attention to detail and not just the architecture and his relationship to the city as a shape almost. But, mm. you know, when I was looking at the, the drawings in the Domestic Bliss show, so you've got that brilliant one I love of... Oh, a journalist, what's her name? Fidel McCook. Fidel McCook, yeah, yeah. sitting sort of mm-hmm. perched on her news desk with all the TV monitors mm-hmm. in the background and she's got a suit on and she's in her natural environment. And I was, you know, so there's that, so, which is a totally like absorbing image, like a woman yeah. in her workplace mm-hmm. owning it. But also you've got these more wistful portraits of Edwin Morgan looking out his window mm-hmm. And Jimmy Reed and family. So they are both within a domestic space. But I wanted to ask you, Katie, about the, the inclusion of that work with Padelma. Yeah, so the Domestic Bliss show evolved over a wee bit. It started out with the Nicola L sculpture and that idea of how artists work slip between craft, design and mm-hmm. art. And some objects within our collection that come from domestic spaces but then come into a museum. So that shift in thinking or how we look at objects but also the history of the house that was on the site of Goma but also it was a royal exchange and I'd worked with Sosha Mm -hmm. in 2014 on the Spheres of Influence show which we didn't show City Recorder Mm -hmm. um, but I'd shown a couple of pieces in polygraphs in 2017 and I think I just love being able to bring out Mm -hmm. some of those works Mm -hmm. but I was also interested in there's a photograph by Nick Wapplington that's been in the collection that came in through Julian Spaulding mm. from his series that was on a council estate and it, it worked with a family to take really candid shots of the family. And I was just really interested in that way of working and recording and documenting people in domestic spaces through photography, but also he, mm-hmm. like the contrast with Alistair mm. in terms of what that captures slightly differently mm. and also sometimes how we, how we view... The difference between photography and, say, drawings or mixed media mm-hmm. and collage in the way that Alistair had used it. And again, like you, I love the Fidelma Cook one as well, just as a really strong, comfortable woman with a cigarette in, mm-hmm. in a studio surrounded by men mm-hmm. and TVs and monitors. Yeah. And, you know, talking about, you know, where works take you. I remember Googling her at the time and this BBC interview with David Bowie yeah. mm-hmm. pops up mm-hmm. on and it's talking about the closure of the Apollo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's one of the last few to play yeah. that you know all you know all these ways that mm-hmm. those works were done in 1977 so capture time yeah. but you know the access we have to google yeah. Yeah. and things now and where that takes us but also those really incredible connections that it mm-hmm. kind of comes back into and you know that's the joy of a collection as well yeah. that i i'm not just bound by a fine art collection i'm able to use yeah. 
works from the social history collection, mm-hmm. but also within that show. Mm-hmm. There are the Nikki de saint Fal perfume bottles, which are registered as decorative arts. Mm-hmm. There's some other things. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's a really lovely way of being able to bring so many objects together you know in the way that we have in a domestic space and we are sitting here in the archive mm-hmm. and having been privileged enough to visit Alistair a couple of times in his own home you know there's a real sense of I'm, I'm sitting on the carpet mm-hmm. that I walked on yeah in his house you know you're yeah. you're in the chair yeah that was there at the desk where mm-hmm. we chatted about artists he knew like Alan Fletcher, Carol mm. Gibbons, mm. their influence on him, what he was really passionate about. These things are all here in the space, which is just really yeah. quite incredible. I mean, it's different in a sense from other archives that, you know, we've talked about works within Classical Life Collection. Obviously, Alistair's got many works in different collections. And so it's important, I think, to have somewhere that not just contains the polymathic nature of his practice, but can make links and connect that's the next thing, to start to share and link up with all these works that sit elsewhere, because that makes all of our collections richer as a result of that. But yeah, it's that feeling of you're not working into an archive, you're working into a space that is emotional and emotive. So we're telling the story of Alistair's life, but how do you do that by objects and stories? And a lot of them, like you were talking about, this spheres of influence from that show but the spheres that you work within within your collection I'm finding the exact same thing here it's like every person every object connects to someone else Mm -hmm. connects to their story and equally I find you know I've had students in I've had visitors for who've never known anything about Alistair's work but you walk in and you react to something and that's as much as then them each person walks over the threshold has their own story to tell and what prompts them to share it and what part of that from what they see here and I think that's what I feel is really fascinating about not only can you learn about Alistair and and his life and how he recorded and mapped Glasgow and beyond, but how can it be a generative resource that can make new things from it? Because it has to be. Because I, I feel Alistair's work throughout my life has been so relevant, and not just his work, but some of the things that we've touched on in terms of um, who he was and the principles by which he kind of lived his life. So being very open, sharing, like exposing collaboration, putting that at the fore, you know, acknowledging people when and they worked and helped him on things. They weren't in the background, they were there and they were collaborators and that acknowledgement and of peers, like you mentioned, Katie like Alan Fletcher and Carol Gibbons and that whole um, yeah, network he, of artists. He also donated a work by Alan to the collection, yeah. so we have that now too. You know, yeah, yeah. there's all these things, sorry, I interrupted. No, but that, you know, he did that because Alan mattered to him and even though he lost him at a very young age and that relationship was very early in a stage it created it was continued to be such a formative experience and how did he keep them alive through developing a character in Lanark about him drawing him promoting his work and I think there's something so generous around that so beyond the archive being a depository of Alistair's work and the story and other people's stories connected to it, it's about generating new things and carrying on those principles in his name too which is about being open and being equitable in how you work and allow people in and to access and use it in different ways I mean as a practitioner that's you know constantly going why don't I just choose one medium and stick to it because that would make everybody's life much easier including mine why don't I just like focus on the writing or focus on doing this I mean sometimes when it becomes difficult to hold all those balls in the air at the same time often I've come close to just you know binning it or getting a so-called normal job but the the person that always brings me back from that brink is Alistair I think of Alistair because it's about the persistence and I think if you're gonna take anything away from his output you know I think you use the word doggedly kind of Mm -hmm. doggedly held on to the idea that you can be all these things Mm -hmm. a creative person 
you know, who sidelines, who, who determines mm-hmm. the train track that the specialisms put mm-hmm. you into? You know, is it art school or does art school sort of railroad you into one specific thing more than another? When I met Alistair, kindly through an introduction from you, Sorsha, I interviewed him at his home about a piece of work that I wanted to collaborate with him on. You know, I was asking all those slightly fan mm-hmm. <laughs> questions where you're just in the presence of somebody that you've always admired. And I was like, well, what keeps you going? And like, how do you know that you're doing the right thing? And how do you know that sometimes it's writing or sometimes it's just reading mm-hmm. or sometimes it's it's like playing with colour mm-hmm. in a certain way or form? And he's like, you know, you just keep doing it. Mm-hmm. You don't ask yourself mm-hmm. all these questions. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to just keep the curiosity mm-hmm. and whatever form that curiosity takes mm-hmm. is what it is. Mm-hmm. So I think he was very kindly trying to tell me to stop sweating it so much yeah. because yeah. it's like you know, I mean, you're, you're yeah. constantly feeling the pressure to conform. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when you go to art school, it's not about conforming, no. yet you come out conforming. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, he's always my sort of touchstone whenever I feel like thrown in the towel, mm-hmm. as I just think, you know, I'll sit and mm-hmm. look at his Life in Pictures yeah. book and I'll go, right, you can do yeah. all these things. There is legitimate reason. There is. And it, I mean, there's quite a few things to pick up on what you just said there. I think like that kind of non-linear way of working and things being cyclical or and that's something that I'm realising moving forward with doing things in his name is actually like it's not about an end point. The process is most important and how do you share that process, you know, and how is that constant, that knowledge is sort of a resource. How do you constantly keep adding and taking and shaping so maybe from him coming from, from the mural making department, which evolved into the department that he studied in and mm-hmm. environmental art, that idea of, like, not the context is half the work, but that idea of he wasn't precious about what the output was. He wasn't, I was in painting. I knew even before you made a mark on the canvas, if you were choosing to paint on canvas, you'd taken a month to build the stretcher to, to get the rabbit skin glue to yeah. size it up to stretch it properly so you were very tentative in how you then made that mark and you were aware of the implications the cost implications and the time of doing that whereas I think Alistair that was bedded in early that idea of well not just encountering text and image and why couldn't they be together but just that idea of we paint over it and you start again or not worrying so I know you were talking earlier about about some of the material in your collection connected to Nikita Sanfal and like the faxes and things for you being able to try and fix and record things that are disappearing and I feel like that's what he was trying to do in his life but also what he's left is disappearing too because he constantly was using materials that were tipex and unstable we don't know what how tipex is going to operate in another 20 years probably not very favorably but that old whole idea of that wasn't what he was bound up with like you're sweating about he's like just do it get it down and just go back to and edit it and i've been reading something recently which talks about that whole idea of when something's finished the knowledge and the learning is done from it and it's dead and it's actually the process and i'm really really trying to hold on to that in terms of as an organization almost representing aster how is the process the more important part how do you share those things it's not about an outcome or a fixed point, often the sharing of the learning to get to that point and then that point being the start to another journey mm-hmm. is really interesting and that's when it doesn't become like a linear thing, it's constantly swirling and looping and referencing itself and I think there's a freedom around that, where does that start? I think kids don't feel that, they definitely don't think that they can, I mean maybe art school things have become different in terms of uh, Alistair was a different generation where you had to be categorised I think, maybe now it's a bit easier to be able to work across multimedia or work in a way where there's not so much of a separation but I think if anything over the last few years people at the top should be taking how important creativity is and self-expression and 
that being such an outlet to what it is to be human mm-hmm. and how we need to do that, we need to express and when does that become something that we do recreationally or not at all, it has to be built in as we exercise every day, you know, we eat healthily, being creative is built in us, we have yeah. to have that as a kind of daily part of, of who we are, I think, and I guess that's starting early, isn't it? I think it's, so, it it's so right what you say, is like, because this sort of leads into the whole fortuitous aspect of the Domestic Bliss show happening just before the mm. lockdown, is that, you know, you're like, did you know something came to be there? <laughs> <laughs> I obviously didn't. You're like, you're off to Wuhan for your holidays, <laughs> mm. but it's just like... It was a full year. It was a full <laughs> year. It's before, true. but yeah, it but, it's, but, you know, that picks mm-hmm. up in your point exactly. So, like, so here we are in an artist's archive. You know, it's a domestic staging mm-hmm. of his studio, in mm-hmm. a way. You know, it's the place where he generated ideas and made meaning mm-hmm. happen. And it's a very domestic space. And I think that, you know, it's this terrible sort of macho idea that you have to have a big studio, white walls and shadow gaps, mm-hmm. in order to be taken seriously as an artist. What I love about the domestic bliss show is that Corsettino is that idea right down where you go... Actually, you don't need to have mm-hmm. the shadow gaps and the big yeah. studio in order to generate meaning. Mm-hmm. You know, you can do that absolutely right back into your immediate familial and familiar mm-hmm. space. You know, that's where a lot of meaning is translated, I suppose. Mm-hmm. You get a print or you buy a piece of work or you read a book. Where's the setting for that digestion of those ideas? It's quite often in your own home. Mm-hmm. So there's a direct correlation between the full circle, between the generating ideas when you're doing the dishes, when you're in the shower, when you're sitting at the kitchen table having a coffee with your friend, talking about, am I an artist? Because I think about writing a lot, mm-hmm. you know, and it's all these conversations that sort of... And it's almost like who defines what that meaning is or exactly. separates it out. And if you're having a creative life, your life is the meaning. And there's no separation, which in a way with Alistair there wasn't between... Yeah. It was all one life. And like you're going back to sort of the driving perseverance to just keep with those things and also to try it and to fail and to be honest about that and not to know what the answer is and to struggle it's the honesty around that that is a life and being okay about exposing the best and worst of those things which I think the idea of the perception of what an artist should be and how you should behave or position yourself is maybe separated from what that honesty of how it is built in and reflected back into a life and into the day-to-day stuff who separates out what is meaningful from those things where you have the right to kind of do that yeah you know I think the take home for me from the domestic bliss show is more like ah it kind of affords a legitimacy to the artists working at home their kitchen table the other shows you know it's like you go to you know Edinburgh and you look at Pelosi's recreation of his studio you know it's fascinating absorbing there's so much going on there's a sort of ordered chaos to it but you know I'm more interested in well what was his kitchen like you know it's like you know what but I'm more like I want to go up and touch those things and look through it and smell it and and emotionally experience it you know obviously there's challenges isn't there and Katie is best placed I'm sure to know about that in terms of some of the things we're talking about archiving and preserving and that fine balance between preserving something for the future but also allowing it to be experienced in the present too all I can say about that in terms of Alistair is I guess the archive was born during the global pandemic too and these are questions that I'm asking myself all the time about why was it done like that or can it be done differently like he did and how can I recreate something from that that is shaped it's born out of a certain period of time so it has to acknowledge that within what it's trying to do and create a different space around that yeah there's so much to talk about that isn't there but Sorsha I was wanting to ask you and you've probably known you you're probably already on the case but the, the whole idea behind the city recorder mm-hmm. series like is that something that you're thinking about developing in the future
future, maybe in partnership with anybody or well, another version of City Recording. Yeah, would uh, be great, wouldn't it? Yeah, there's so much to think about in relation to Alistair's work. I mean, even just flicking through that ledger I was talking to you about and the lines of inquiry that sort of stem from it, opening a version of his storyboard of Lanark and the ideas around that. Everything is almost like a constellation of other ideas. I think you could take any object out and mind map it and it could go into 10 or 20 different directions. I think for me at the moment, I'm really keen to develop all of that, but the focus for the last few years has been trying to make this stable, so you're having a stable, solid foundation to start to generate and grow from that, but testing out ways of working. So there has been some new commissions that I've been working on with Strathclyde, the creative writing department there. So there's been ways of testing out how those things could work, and that's as much about what could the outcome be, but also how do you collaborate? Everyone's got different ideas of what collaboration means, so as much as I think a lot of the work over the last six months has almost been defined what is the organisation, what are these values that it stands for, how do you clearly articulate that so that when you enter into these conversations with people you know or you don't know, there's an understanding of what it is about Alistair's work that you're trying to take forward. I mean, it would be um, such a tough gig to follow that, wouldn't it? It's it like, would, as an, if you're an artist and you're like, well, I mean, it would be, I... you'd think it'd be the perfect fit for Glasgow Life, though, to do every five years, <laughs> oh, well, every decade, as a two-recorded series. Pressure, Katie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Part of me is, you know, obviously trying to try and tell stories objects here but we're lucky in, in Glasgow and having so many public works that Alistair has left behind too and you know the recent commission that I worked on with Scottish Canals just along yeah. from here have uh, four new text works by him as well so for me it's about trying to now maybe root some of the make connections between some of those tell the stories around them too because there's obviously lots of people who help particularly in something like Vicky's Chip and or in more an SPT, there's lots of there's a team around that who helped, but also there's all the people that he drew or connected or he'd meet in the pub. Those conversations would help shape uh, that outcome too. So there's yeah the many spheres that it connects from. I love the city recorder idea because mm. it's sort of there's as much detail in the background mm. than there is in the in yeah. his portraits. Yeah. It's like the Edwin Morgan. Honestly, I could stare at that for hours because mm. I'm like the book trying to work out what, the the book, what are the book <laughs> titles that he's got on his shelf uh-huh. and this like the type of houseplants that he's got and uh-huh. the view out of his window. But that know. makes a difference though, right? Because I feel that when people come in here and they sit on the green chair and they look up, they feel like this is the closest they could get to feeling what it's like to always be Alistair and to look and and to get his perspective or viewpoint and that's kind of what that is it's those incidental details which are so revealing yeah they reveal so much about a person in a life don't they and you were talking about that earlier in terms of the domestic being the pristine white studio sometimes isn't this you know it's a domestic environment that encapsulates all of that and brings it together that can be so insightful I think in terms of what you can take from that well, yeah, I mean, it's the sort of specificity of Alistair's work in terms of it's not just, like, the fact that he can communicate um, a sort of musculature in the body with one line. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible. It's very tough. So the sort of paired-backness of his portraits in some of the City Recorder series are incredible. I mean, I know the process was that he would quite often work separately mm. on brown paper or whatever mm. and then put it back mm. over whatever domestic mm. interior that he was 
and he would sp- he'd obviously spend so much time thinking about and, uh, honing that down and if uh-huh. you talk to any of his secretaries he did exactly the same thing with language so he'd sit for hours editing and re-editing the sentence and editing it further and what it is is it's just a distillation into its purest form mm-hmm. and that, that was around access and equity too it's around how do I make this the simplest but the most clearest in a way to understand what it is I'm trying to do yeah. I just think that's so beautiful and so yeah. everything well, I mean just to have a life dedicated to doing that is incredible really yeah yeah, it's that sort of distillation. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing, it's like where all the work is, isn't it? It's like the editing process, mm-hmm. how you chip away, mm-hmm. how you shape mm-hmm. ideas mm-hmm. so that there's nothing that's superfluous mm-hmm. or nothing that's going to take a someday way down another path. You know, you, you have to be really clear about it. And it is, it's quite a kind of sculptural process mm-hmm. in lots of ways. I think sometimes he did, though. But then I think Potch is often overlooked as the playful side of that too. Oh. And you see that maybe more in the writing, where he did take you down a rabbit hole and it was a dead end. Yeah. And you know he would be you know I'm actually going to give you a lot of information but sometimes you have to work to make up yeah. your own I guess it's opening up different ways of thinking but allowing you mm-hmm. which is kind of what we we're talking about earlier you as an individual and we're all the three of us are sitting around here but we've, we're all shaped by different experiences as individuals mm-hmm. and we're all responding to different elements as a result of that you know it's opening that up enough that people can come in with their own background and mm-hmm. backpack and unpack it and get something from it that I think is but I think at the core of all his work I think is just incredible generosity mm-hmm. so like I was I basically wrote a piece of fan fiction <laughs> called Fantoon I don't know how I, I just that sort of naivety of youth thing just sort of made sure that he, he had a copy mm-hmm. of it and he really responded well to it and he probably thought this is so derivative <laughs> of Lanark and it was, it was trying to do sort of similar things in lots of ways but obviously it was just a different thing so I, I asked him if he would collaborate with me for work in Edinburgh I think I was in a residency at Stills Gallery and I asked him if he could be the cartographer of my I took a, like a tour of Edinburgh so a lot of the cartography that he created was imagined he gave me the the brilliant final directive which was disappear in front of your audience Mm -hmm. and so from that being just a one line and he was very clear about that's how I should vanish Mm -hmm. he actually used the word vanish not disappear I ended up in the camera obscura in Edinburgh and spoke to this person that was running the tours with the camera obscura and talked about Alistair saying you need to vanish in front of your audience and the tour person said well actually you know there's a hidden door in here you could do that (laughs) so I did vanish in front of an audience and the, the excitement that I got from disappearing down a hole I had everybody mm-hmm. in the audience around the camera obscura humming yeah. <laughs> um, and while watching the city and to know that that was my moment to vanish and I'm all down the back stairs of the camera mm-hmm. obscura and kind of ran out onto the Royal Mile like mm-hmm. full of this sort of manic glee mm-hmm. and got straight on a train to Glasgow and came to Merchant Terrace to, to see Alistair and told him all about it, it sort of through bated breath and he was just like giggling insanely at how I had sort of done like yeah. conjured this mm-hmm. I mean there was lots of other things they asked me to do it was like go to the parliament like Holyrood with a stone from Hume's tomb mm-hmm. and to sort of be subversive and political subversive in a way which had a material aspect to it but it was just a thing that was like this wonderful bonding experience mm-hmm. from somebody that was a fan of his work to somebody that was like a like felt like a true collaboration yeah. but that was all down to his generosity yeah, of spirit and, and he 
wouldn't have thought. I mean, I remember, you know, Rog, um, class who I work with a lot at Creative Writing Department at Strathclyde, who wrote the biography of Alistair. But before he knew him, you know, he was a student and he would say that they would share and exchange postcards. We've got a few actually in the archive and Rog is in recently rereading them and he was saying, oh, that was what, you know, I, I was a student and I had done nothing. And he was Alistair Gray, but yet he wrote to me as an equal. And of course, why wouldn't he? It's that whole idea of like he was the most generous and non-judgmental of people. And Bernard McLaverty had a great quote about that. What did he say? He said, everyone in Alistair's mind was worth knowing, worth meeting. And when, when they were when he'd met them, they were worth knowing. And I thought mm-hmm. that generosity of how you didn't have to prove yourself, it wasn't because mm-hmm. he'd just because he'd made stuff didn't mean it was important. What is important? That's other people perceiving that that's more valuable than someone else who does a different job which is hugely valuable important in a yeah. different way that was true of his relationships with everybody mm-hmm. and anybody the fact that he saw my brother this like little glasgow waif mm-hmm. <laughs> with you know lanark mm-hmm. in his in his coat pocket yeah. and noticed that detail is like that thing that eye for detail that he had that mm-hmm. you know he had it in a way which was this incredible a sort of outreaching of empathy that he had with people they could identify with people on many levels and in so many ways like when you spoke to Alistair it wasn't like having a normal conversation with a normal person mm-hmm. it was like having this altered state conversation mm-hmm. all the time which I think people you know are just open to especially mm-hmm. Glaswegians it seems that you know, so he's like, he could see the details of people in the pub that he knew that he would never meet this person mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. But how many people have you met that have said, oh, I've got a wee drawn mm-hmm. of myself mm-hmm. by Alistair, or he signed the book? Mm-hmm. This openness, this mm-hmm. absolute sort of, you know, and that's where I guess his politics were just like manifested in the way that he mm-hmm. was as a human being, you know, and how, you know, you have to remember that, especially as we're all coming out of lockdown, mm-hmm. we've all been siloed mm-hmm. within our own little pockets of the world and places in the house, even. Mm-hmm. And to feel that the ideas that Alistair encapsulates can only really be supported by an interconnecting network that can support that. Mm-hmm. You can't operate in a silo. It's just mm-hmm. it's just not possible mm-hmm. to have a creative life. And whether it means that, you know, if you can't afford a studio, that you invite another artist or another writer mm-hmm. or somebody mm-hmm. into your home and you make them a cup of tea. Mm-hmm. Remember for a while I was doing these things that I was inspired by. Leela Zano, mm-hmm. and she would invite people for just soup and a sandwich in her house and that was it Mm -hmm. and as soon as the soup and sandwich was finished she shunted them out the door Mm -hmm. but it was a a methodology Mm -hmm. you know it was like Mm -hmm. how do you get ideas Mm -hmm. into your bones yeah you know you invite people into Mm -hmm. your most intimate spaces Mm -hmm. you know I think Alistair did that you know Mm -hmm. I can remember where that desk was Mm -hmm. in his house and how it felt like the kind Mm -hmm. of altarpiece Mm -hmm. Of this entire mm-hmm. sort of over in a way, so as spring opens up everything up and we're coming out of this pandemic, mm-hmm. I think it's you know it's really important that we yeah. do reconnect with each other. Yeah, and I mean I think it's almost I feel like I need to do not the disclaimer, but it's like you know to live a life like that is difficult, and there's an emotional mm-hmm. and a financial, and there's fallout. So it's not as simple. And I wouldn't say it was a choice because I don't think he had a choice. I think he that's the only way he could be. You know, there was a cost to terms of his personal relationships, in terms of his financial stability, and there was other things to be that um, determined and have that perseverance mm-hmm. had its its own struggles and costs. But I think he was quite good at not dealing with those aspects of it and focusing on the things that he wanted to do, which was this need and this real drive, and which I think became 
could at times become very challenging, very mm. draining to have al- almost this busyness of voices and ideas constantly swirling in his head. But that was what kept him, you know, even really before his accident, he was up at like nine and did a full eight hour. You know, he had that real drive mm. and, you know, obviously he had to adjust to life being in the wheelchair and, you know, having his the physical adjustments that he had to make after his accident. But he still worked and it was still, it was making work and working on the interpretation of Dante that kind of got him through and allowed him to adjust to. And I think it was because he was never, he had physical things throughout his life as a child and then as an adult that he always mentally, he could travel and he could escape and he could use the imaginative world as a space that he could go to. So whatever was maybe physically um, challenging or rooting him, he could use that as a way of not escaping, but there was something around that that allowed him to. And I think obviously for a lot of us, there isn't, we can't be that extreme in how we live our lives. But I think in lockdown, I think a lot of people have seen the importance of being creative and having that imaginative life and how that feeds the emotional, the physical, everything else. And I think that comes into not just as adults, how do employers make people work, you know, allow them to work more from home or understand that they need to go for a walk over lunchtime, whatever it is, to make them be happier and better at their job and who they are as a person but I think it's at schools too it's that idea of making space for okay we can push literacy and numeracy in this post-pandemic world but if the kid is not happy and not feeling supportive and creative they're not going to learn so it's a very basic thing that I think we need to you'd hope that after what we've been through these will be a kind of a positive legacy from it but I guess it still remains unclear doesn't it? Yeah it's sort of interesting to hear that sales and poetry went like tripled during Mm -hmm. lockdown I guess when you limit your options, mm-hmm. your imagination yeah. exceeds. Yeah. And so when people are were limited to just being in their homes and being with their family, mm-hmm. you know, it was almost like how do you stretch your imagination to the, its fullest? You know, I think poetry quite often does that thing that you talked mm-hmm. about, that distillation of yeah. complex ideas and language, and it tries to distill it down to a kind of purity mm-hmm. when people are buying more poetry because they're in lockdown you've got to think about gosh it says so much about the capacity of human need for a hinterland mm-hmm. I suppose mm-hmm. for lack of a better word mm-hmm. but that ability to connect with something other yeah. or outside or outside your experience mm-hmm. which obviously Alistair does in all of his novels and all of, the, all of his writings mm-hmm. you know it's about that incredibly internationalist and open-ended approach to how do you think about mm-hmm. socialism in relation to a depiction of a street in mm-hmm. Bridgeton mm-hmm. in the 1970s mm-hmm. you know it's like you the connections are all there you mm-hmm. just need to try it. it's like reading poetry yeah. it's like Poetry is really just about focusing the attention. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's why I think he's a he's mm-hmm. actually a great poet mm-hmm. and philosopher, is yeah. that he focuses your attention in a really specific way mm-hmm. into this world that he's created. Yeah, I could talk about Alistair all day and how important he is. So. <laughs> well, I'm aware that we, we might have to draw it to close. And I, I guess that's one of the things that, you know, we'd spoken about mm-hmm. in an exhibition like Domestic Bliss, that idea of just being able to chat. And mm-hmm. it's not like a meeting at the domestic space, it's a conversation. Mm-hmm. And it's been fascinating mm-hmm. just listening to this because I think we had a very open idea mm-hmm. of we'd start with a question about mm-hmm. Glasgow 1996 mm-hmm. and Alistair and yeah. see where that led. So mm-hmm. this has been incredible. Thank you yeah. both so much. I'm, I am very reluctant to stop. Can the I just say something about the work in Goma that is the kitchen? table work that I was doing because Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of that comes from 
Alistair is saying that he would often have like business meetings in the pub and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And I think that when you know I wanted to set up a table in Goma, you know, I was like it should transpose the state of my kitchen table into public space, into the gallery or the museum space and see what happens. But that wasn't enough. And then I realised that it was about the engagement. Mm-hmm. So that in a way, the kitchen table acts as a you know, horizontal portal. Mm-hmm. There's that brilliant picture that Alan Dimmick took of Alistair mm-hmm. next to a boarded up doorway. Downside lane, yes. Downside We've lane. we just got it right the corner there. And I always think, anytime I look it's at that portal. photograph, I always think it's a portal uh-huh. to unthink. Uh-huh. And I was thinking very much that the sort of horizontal plane of the table is also a door and it's also mm-hmm. a portal and it's also a thing that supports ideas and all that sort of stuff. So it didn't really connect with me until I read something that Alistair wrote in a conversation just about the fact that it's, it all happens in the conversation or in mm. a kind of dialogic approach to the world and to how you think about the next idea. And so it wasn't until I started inviting people to sit down at my table mm. and then give us something to both do. So this idea of having a typewriter between us and then taking turns to use it and create this sort of exquisite corpse pose. The amount of times that artists and writers were always very tentative, but members of the public were so up for it mm-hmm. and would you'd be fighting to get the typewriter mm-hmm. out of their hands because yeah. <laughs> they want to tell you about mm-hmm. what used to be there, the buildings that were mm-hmm. no, that were demolished, mm-hmm. or they want to tell you about that when Glasgow was black with soot, or they want to tell you about what they remember of being in that building before. So it's like this like massive outpouring from the uh-huh. heart mm-hmm. of... Well, it's the, also around you valuing their... It's a collaboration, isn't it? Or are you allowing them to shape that process and that them feeling valued within that? That's why conversations are so important. And when you do a proper exchange like that, it's like not you dictating what the boundaries are. You're allowing to be shaped through them and, and vice versa, which seems to really yeah. chime with Alistair and his whole approach. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just like it's sort of completely... For me to sort of sit at that table and look up at those drawings of, of Alistair's from mm-hmm. the City Recorder, I'm just like... Pfft. I mean, also right behind me is that amazing work with mm. Jackie Donaghy as well. Mm-hmm. And the whole relationship to the studio mm-hmm. has been a sort of gendered space mm-hmm. as well. So I think there's so much in it. And it's like, as you say, Sorsha, you could spend six months on every object mm-hmm. in this archive mm-hmm. and build out this incredible, mm-hmm. everlasting mm-hmm. repository of ideas That's from quite, it. Yeah, because conversations continue, don't they? And even yeah. Alistair would do that. You'd ask him one day about a work and he'd say something to you. You'd ask him a week later and it'd be slightly different. You know, we are shaped by those conversations and that and they're fixed to that point in time but we could sit down a month from now and we would start with the same premise but it would go completely somewhere else and that's what's so exciting about it I think yeah. the kind of power of words of what your idea is but that collaboration right or being shaped by others throughout it and maybe the domestic space where it feels like there's less pressure and there's more ability to maybe to do that it seems a safe environment for maybe people to let go and allow this sort of shape and whether that's by pets or mm-hmm. other people that they share that space with or objects that they've inherited from other people or they've bought themselves it's just this melting point isn't it of conversations to just materially mm-hmm. you know you know you don't have a lot of people were locked out of their studios during mm-hmm. lockdown so they didn't have access to their you know materials or paper stocks that they normally use so quite often you know I was using the back of the kitchen towels mm-hmm. that you know there's a lot of paper involved mm-hmm. in packaging those paper those kitchen towels double big thing mm-hmm. barrels of towels and so you're like okay well this through necessity mm-hmm. this has like become mm-hmm. another piece of language mm-hmm. for me to to work with or work on top of mm-hmm. so in the same thing with you were talking about like 
God, what's the archival nature of Tipex, yeah. you know, or like using mm-hmm. the wrong kind of tape to put things together. Mm-hmm. I was doing some tea dyeing mm-hmm. with my kids the other day. It's like, how do you age stuff mm-hmm. when you use tea bags? Mm-hmm. It's like it's the idea of like all these materials that exist within mm-hmm. the domestic world yeah. are quite often just never considered mm-hmm. as being a palette mm-hmm. to make work from or build from, or even just to ask the question, you know, why can't I use tea as a material, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. It's like when you, you see all the, the rips and tears in all his ledgers mm-hmm. and the way that he's cut things up and pasted them together. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very yeah. kind of... Or I love, I think he Robinson. commented before in the photo of him mixing his paint in the muffin tin or, you know, mm-hmm. he'd have his can of prunes and then he'd use a bit of a leftover juice with some water to mix <laughs> up some paint. It's just the idea of that slippage between... Life is like that if you're living and working yeah. in the same space. It's not separating it. It's all part of the one thing, isn't it, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's value in those things. Absolutely. Which is, I think it's maybe for so long that's been, I guess, there's political and social and other reasons for that, but that's not been deemed as important. But who said that and why we need to kind of re- readdress that or question that position, right? And I guess for a lot of people, having experience, direct experience of that has allowed them to take ownership of shifting what that work-life balance is in that yeah. space, whereas maybe they haven't had the power before. But it's, it's also that thing about, like, feminist art. Yeah. The 70s, you know, obviously, the law of it was, like, based in performance or it was based in a kitchen, you know, we, we all know those are important works, but it's, it feels like now we have to sort of get beyond mm-hmm. asking those questions or having those reference points. It's like, yes, yeah, I'm a woman and I... I have caring responsibilities, but also I don't want to make work about those mm-hmm. things. You know, I've got other things to say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's about being given the, the opportunity to, I guess, recontextualise the spaces for ideas and being supported in those ideas. Mm-hmm. So when a major museum in mm-hmm. the centre of a city says it's okay to make work in your house. You kind of go, ah, okay, now I can move on. And I think it's hopefully, you know, for a lot of people, they've been in a permanent state of lockdown and it's allowed us to understand needs and abilities moving forward. There's an audience, if you move purely digital, you, you know, how do you build that and this hybrid model or how do you acknowledge that and cater for these different needs sort of moving forward, which... I think it's exciting to think about, isn't it? But it, it feels like there's different programming or strands that could be shaped as a de- and developed as a result of that, and that's often maybe not even around the physical experience of coming into the gallery. It's like, how can you use technology or work in a way where you can engage or allow others to input, but they're not physically there? I think there's huge scope in terms of now, because we're now at a kind of hybrid model of how all those things could work, and I think it is going to be a bit of testing out, isn't it, of those boundaries and how it can work. Work, but it's yeah, exciting I guess too. going back to what you're saying about generative yeah and I, I suppose that's one of the kind of try and draw our conversation to clip yeah and that would be hard. I know you tried um, earlier apologies sorry no it's fine <laughs> that's, 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 that's what these are and, and hopefully for people listening they'll understand <laughs> that these are podcasts and their conversations um Domestic Bliss, it's a semi-permanent show Mm -hmm. and it's there to change and be responded to Mm -hmm. by different artist commissions that are in the space that then shift the conversation and it's it's also people bring in different experiences and respond to works in different ways and like so going back to what you were saying before about something like an exhibition that's often seen as a finished product I don't see Domestic Bliss as a finished project, I see Mm -hmm. as a working process Mm -hmm. that is generative and and may spark off other things Mm -hmm. for visitors or artists or even our collection works that are engaged mm-hmm. within it. And that's great too, isn't it? If you think about the audience too and how their role within a museum is by mm-hmm. coming in and 
viewing but if they're participants and active participants in shaping what that could be it's so exciting in terms of time back to Ulster and equity and authorship and collaboration and giving equal status to those things or those ways of engaging mm-hmm. mm. thank you both so much mm-hmm. I'm reluctant to stop but I think we will well that's all we have time for in this episode of the Glasgow Museums podcast if you've enjoyed and want to hear more You can find more episodes available on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts and on SoundCloud too. Just look out for Glasgow Museums. Until next time, thanks for listening.